This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Cullum. And this week, I sit down with Elisa Childers to discuss progressive Christianity. What is progressive Christianity? How does someone like me and you, who is a historic Christian, identify progressive views in the church? We also talk about some buzzwords or red flags to watch for. Elisa's book, Another Gospel, which I recently finished, describes the intellectual journey she took as she wrestled through a series of questions that bubbled up following a Sunday school class she attended. The teacher of that Sunday school class was one of her pastors who had personally invited her to the class. He taught the class and admitted that he was a hopeful agnostic. As you will discover in today's episode, Elisa's questions were answered, and now she uses her experience to help others build a solid faith in the truths of God and His Word. Before we begin, I want to thank our sponsor, Hope and Vine, for making this episode possible. At Hope and Vine, every item tells a story, and every story has a purpose. That is why every piece of jewelry and apparel is designed to remind and encourage you to believe who you were created to be. Not only that, but your purchase help young women who have aged out of the foster care system successfully transition to a secure and stable future. The young women work as artisans in a positive and affirming environment while creating these products. Each item tells a story. Every story has a purpose. So tell your story in a beautiful way when you shop at www.hope-vine.myshopify.com. That's hope-vine.myshopify.com. And at checkout, enter GRACE-2020 through December 31st to receive 15% off your purchase. That's GRACE-2020 for 15% off your purchase. Okay, friends, let's jump into this week's conversation with Elisa Childers. Good afternoon, Elisa. Thank you for being on the GRACE Enough podcast today. Hey, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, let's get started if you, with you just introducing yourself and tell us a little bit about your family and what you do. Well, I have a kind of interesting background that led me to where I am today. So I have a background in music. I uh, grew up as the daughter of one of the pioneers of contemporary Christian music and went into the music industry myself for several years with the group Zoe Girl. Maybe some of your listeners will whoop, whoop. remember <laughs> Zoe Girl. That's right. All the yeah. early or late 90s, early 2000s Christians, they're cheering for that. 
That's right. That's right. And so, uh, you know, essentially now I have a blog and I've just written a book, but it, the book is really a reflection of my story. So after Zoe Girl ended, I went through a time of uh, pretty dark doubt about what I believed about Christianity. So uh, the book chronicles that journey. And I know we can dig down uh, into that a little more as we go along, but just a bit about my family. I'm married. In fact, I married our drummer. I'm a walking oh. cliche. <laughs> So I married Zoe Girl's drummer, Mike, and we've been married 17 years, and we have awesome. a 12-year-old little girl who's awesome and a nine-year-old little boy who's awesome. And I, that's my favorite thing is being a mom and a wife. And so all the other stuff I get to do is just icing on the cake. And, and uh, so it's, it's really fun to get to blog about reasons why Christianity is true and to help other people with their doubts. And so that's what I do. Yeah, well, in addition to blogging, you have a podcast, the Elisa Childers podcast, which is a podcast that has been really beneficial in my life. So thank you for doing that. Oh, that's so great to hear. Thank you. Yeah, we, we started the podcast, I guess, about three years ago. And then I just started a YouTube channel since yes. COVID started. So I'm, I'm on all the platforms now. I know, right? That's why you got to have that cute little setup that everybody can't see here. But if you hop <laughs> over to YouTube, you'll see it. Yes. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your journey and your book, Another Gospel. You have been a follower of Jesus for a lot of years. And the time came when you actually got invited to a Sunday school class by one of the professors, I mean, one of the pastors. And that is when your faith was actually challenged. That can be very surprising to people. And as you tell your story, the listeners will understand. But walk us through what happened and tell us a little bit about what was going on in that Sunday school class. Yes. So part of the background of what makes this kind of, like you mentioned, this might shock people that I went through doubt. It's in that reason for that is because I had spent so much of my life as a committed Christian, a very genuine, authentic Christian. I had wonderful Christian parents who modeled the real thing for me. Uh, so the Christianity that I grew up with was very holistic in the sense that my parents, it wasn't just a Sunday thing. We, and it wasn't just a church thing. This was something that we lived as a family, not perfectly, not at all trying to right. <laughs> imply that it was at all perfect, but that's kind of the point is, is what my parents did with the imperfect things that they would do or that would happen. Always just going back to the Lord and also taking care of others. And uh, my mom always had us out working the soup lines at the Fred Jordan Mission. We did street evangelism with my dad. And so it was just this, um, it was just our life. And I loved Jesus as far back as I can remember. And I was, I was the kid in youth group that nobody would have worried about. I was the one mm. that everybody would have said, oh, she will be just fine. And for the most part, they were right. Uh, obviously going into the Christian music industry and part of the focus of Zoe Girl was to equip young women in particular to be bold for their faith in Christ, mm -hmm. to not shrink back, to not be timid about what they believed. And we had so many letters from young girls over the years just saying, thank you so much for your lyrics. They're, they make me uh, feel strong when I'm on my public school campus and to not be shy, uh, but to be bold with what I believe. And so this was something that I was all in on my entire life. Mm -hmm. And so that, that gives a little bit of the backdrop to 
just the sudden change that happened um, essentially after Zoe Girl came off the road and we were all married and starting to have kids. And so my husband and I started attending a church, a local church here, where we just we loved the pastor. We loved the people. And after about eight months, the pastor invited me, as you mentioned, to be a part of this small class situation that he compared to seminary. He said, if you go to this class, when you come out on the other side of it, you'll have this seminary level education, which to me sounded so exciting. Yeah. Because, you know, I grew up in the artistic side of things. I wasn't really intellectually so much engaged with my faith. And so I was, that sounded so exciting. And so in the context of the class, the pastor early on revealed that he was actually agnostic. And that really kind of shook me a little bit because I so by this point had come to respect this guy and really right. trust him as a pastor. I really thought we believed the same things. And so over the course of about four months, just about everything that I ever believed about God and Jesus and the Bible in particular mm -hmm. was picked apart and explained away, much like what you might experience in an atheist philosophy class in college or, you know, in an evolutionary biology class. We hear stories like that from Christian kids who go off to college and have their faith challenged. And so in a very similar way, my faith was challenged, only it wasn't uh, in a college classroom, it was in a church. Mm. And, you know, while I was in the class, I would try to debate with the pastor and try to counter what he was saying. But it wasn't until we decided to leave about four months later that all of the doubts that he had planted uh, really took root in my own heart and soul and began to grow. And that really threw me into um, mm -hmm. a really unexpected and really dark time of doubt about what I believed. Well, and something that you write in the book that was just really captivating in a way is how easily so many people in the class with you were on board mm. with what the pastor was saying. And I think that was huge for me because if I'm being honest, I have struggled so much with some of the progressive thoughts mm. and it's a subtle change that can happen, but to be in a group and watch that take place, I, I just can't imagine what it was like for you as you're sitting there and you write that a little bit. I'm looking around and I'm going, oh my gosh, all these people are buying into this. Mm. Yeah. And so when you left that place, and you really started digging in or doubting, I should say, what were some of the next steps that you took to decide, okay, I'm going to figure this out. Do I believe all the things I've been taught all my life or do I not? Mm. Yeah. And that's the question, isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, well, one thing, so I'll, I'll frame this in a couple of ways. So during that really dark time of doubt, I was in a weird phase of life anyway. I was a new mom and yeah, I Amen, was, girl. Amen. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I totally know. I totally so I had know. a toddler and I was pregnant with my second child. So you're already just barely making it from exhaustion mm -hmm. and hormones and all the hormones things. and all the things, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was all going on. And so I had a lot of really dark nights in the rocking chair with mm -hmm. my daughter. And so 
one time I just remember, in fact, I opened the book with the scene where I'm, I've got her in the rocking chair and I'm just singing hymns into the darkness, really in this state of what you might call cognitive dissonance, where I sort of believed two opposite things at the same time. Yeah. And it was torment. I, it's like I knew God existed, but I had been intellectually persuaded that he didn't. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to resolve this tension in my soul um, so, so that gives you a picture into just the darkness. Um, but to frame it also about just what were the next steps, one thing I did observe that was very clear to me was that a lot of the other people in the class that were buying into some of these ideas, it seemed that what they were walking away from wasn't necessarily the real thing. Mm. So I heard people saying things like they were changing their minds about God because their prayers weren't answered the way that oh. they thought they were supposed to be answered. Or maybe they grew up, others had expressed that they grew up in a really suffocating mm -hmm. and legalistic environment. Yeah. And that's what they were giving up. And others still expressed growing up in a Christian bubble where they had never been exposed to other religions or, or something like that. And so when they witnessed say Buddhists in a, in a monastery, they couldn't reconcile the sincerity they saw from the Buddhists with what they were told about Buddhists growing up. And mm -hmm. so I noticed there were, there were a lot of reasons people were embracing these new ideas, but I wanted to be sure that if I was going to really press into these doubts and figure out what I really believe and what I think is true. And if I, if I wanted to come to the decision that Christianity wasn't true, I wanted to make sure that what I was rejecting was the real thing and not just the version of it that I grew up with, even though I had a yes. good, pretty good experience. Um, maybe that wasn't real. I just, I just wanted to make sure that I knew what Christianity was so that if I decide it's not true, it's based on what is actually real about it. Yes. And so that, that was the next steps for me was I had to kind of go through some apologetics of basically, do I think God exists, which I resolved fairly quickly. I think the arguments in favor of at least some kind of a God existing are so strong. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was sort of the beginning of my journey, but much of it was spent just surrounding the Bible, because like I mentioned, I was that kid you'd never worry about because I encounter, I mean, it's not like I didn't ever hear skeptical claims against Christianity, but I was able to so easily dismiss them because I would just say, well, the Bible says, and if this person yes. thinks that, you know, that's not true, well, they just don't believe the Bible. So when this pastor was able to sort of knock the legs out from under the Bible, in an, what was seeming to be an effective intellectual way, yeah. that's when the snowball just started rolling with all the doubts. Yeah, well, and we're going to talk a little bit about that because like what you, you said, it wasn't a university professor who really challenged everything you believed, but it was a progressive Christian pastor. And that to me has become a word that I understand. But after sharing something on social media a few weeks ago, I realized that a lot of people don't even know what progressive Christianity is, even though it's all around us all the time. So what is progressive Christianity? And share with us maybe some of their core beliefs or just, you know, those subtle differences yeah. between historic and progressive Christianity. 
progressive Christianity can be a bit tough to define because I think as Christians, we're so conditioned to think about beliefs. Christians have been what we would call creedal from the very first century, meaning that we have always organized ourselves around what we believe. That's so right. even going back to the first three to five years after Jesus' death, we have these really early Christian creeds beginning to circulate saying, look, this is what's important. This is what we all agree we believe about Jesus' death and his resurrection and how that relates with the scriptures. And, you know, if you go on a church website, you go and you look at the belief statement. What do they believe? Because that's what's important to Christians. And so one of the hallmarks of progressive Christianity is that it's not really so much a movement that's unified around a creed or around beliefs, because it's really not so much about what you believe. It's more about what you do. And mm -hmm. so in progressive Christianity, you might have one progressive Christian that believes Jesus was resurrected from the dead and another one who doesn't. And, and for, for, you know, historic Christians, that would be a problem. We would say, well, we can't be in unity with each other because we disagree on such a core tenet of the faith. But in progressive mm -hmm. Christianity, it's just not about that. So that's why it can be hard to define. But I think the best way to define it is if you if you had a recipe for progressive Christianity, it would be uh, the theology of the theological liberalism that arose in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So in essence, beliefs that are calling the the Bible's reliability into question, uh, questioning if we really think the whole Bible is the Word of God. Um, questioning some of the miraculous events in the Bible. Did those things really happen? Does it matter? So you take that theological liberalism and you marry it with the cultural postmodern sort mm -hmm. of, um, you know, what's true for you, what is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me idea. You marry those things together and you plant it right in the middle of the evangelical church. Mm -hmm. That would be what the progressive Christian movement is. And so um, as, but, but here's the thing that's interesting about that is I spent a couple of years reading all of the progressive books I could get my hands on and listening to their podcasts and reading their blog posts. And one thing I discovered is that even though it's not a creedal movement necessarily, there really are some core tenets most progressive thought leaders affirm. And that has to do with the, what they think about the Bible and the cross and the gospel. And we can get into those uh, if, if you'd like to. But, but as much as I think they try to present themselves as a movement that's just really all-inclusive, and if you're just on your journey, it's okay wherever you're at, whatever you believe is fine. There, it's, it really does bottom back out into some, some pretty hardcore tenets that um, that you probably wouldn't want to push back on if you were a part of that movement, if mm, that makes sense. That does make sense. And, and we're going to dig in a little bit about the Bible and their view on that. So hopefully um, what their core tenet is on that will kind of come out a little bit. But mm -hmm. with that said, let's talk about, you know, Scripture being the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. You know, I've heard more and more Christians wrestling through this idea, including myself. Um, mm -hmm. And you were taught that, you know, it is the infallible word of God, just like I was, and you believe that. But like so many of us who grew up in Christian faith, or even who came to it later in life, we didn't have any real 
intellectual like reasoning mm-hmm. that we could put out there for why we believe this. Mm-hmm. And it's something I love about all the work you've done because you dug deep and you have gone great length to, to say, you know, this is not really that new of an argument. People have been saying it's not the infallible word of God for centuries. And so will you talk a little bit about what you discovered and all the research that you did when it comes to God's word being infallible? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one I love to talk about. And that's why I have three chapters dedicated to it. I love it. So read the book, friends. (laughs) That's it's like every other subject got one chapter, but the Bible got three. Um, Because that was such, like I mentioned, such a huge part of my journey back to um, historic Christian faith. And so there's a couple of ways we have to approach this question because there's two key questions that we have to address when we're going to talk about the reliability of the Bible or because you can't call something infallible or inerrant if you don't even have an accurate copy of what it is. And so this was the first sort of journey I went on was to discover if we even have an accurate copy of the Bible, because that that's what was so rattling to me was that when I was told, gosh, there's hundreds of thousands of mistakes in the New Testament. Did you know that? And of course, I had never heard that. And so I didn't know what to do with that. And if that was true, what does that say about what I think about the Bible being inerrant and fallible and all of that? And so that was the first question I had to just dig into. And so, I, I mean, I listened to seminary lectures and uh, just I found the scholars that do this work. And so basically, this is, this is a science called textual criticism. Mm-hmm. And this is something that used to just be in the world of academia. The layperson wasn't really aware of how this was all working. But, you know, 20 years or so ago, some skeptical scholars started writing on the lay level to let the average person know how this works. And, um, you know, they were writing from a very persuasively skeptical uh, perspective. And, and so I think that's what some of these progressive Christians got their hands on. And for a a little bit that went unchallenged because the more conservative scholars, it took them a while to start catching up with what was being produced for the layperson. And so essentially, um, we have to kind of understand how the manuscripts were transmitted. So obviously the printing press didn't come around until much later, but in the early days, in the first century, uh, Paul would write a letter or someone would write their gospel and then copies would be made. And so then more copies would be made and then the cop, the original would be sent on to another church and then they'd make their copies and then people would make copies from their copies. And these are all handwritten copies. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine considering the fact that we have over 5,000 manuscripts for the new Testament, just in Greek, that's not even to mention the Syriac and the other languages, but in just in Greek and the language it was written in, we have over 5,000. And knowing that human beings copied these by hand, you're going to find differences in the manuscript. It's just, I mean, it's just going to happen. And so among these 5,000 or so manuscripts, there are hundreds of thousands of differences. Now, I don't think that it's, it's correct to call them mistakes because very often what, what you're finding with these differences is spelling differences. You know, they didn't have dictionaries in the first century Roman Empire. So people are going to spell words in different ways. You might find a word 
out of order. So in one manuscript, it might say Jesus Christ and the other manuscript, it might say Christ Jesus. Mm. And so even according to the most skeptical scholars, in fact, I quote a, a famously skeptical scholar, Bart Ehrman on this, mm-hmm. even according to him, the vast majority of these hundreds of thousands of differences between the manuscripts, they don't affect the meaning of the words at all. And so when I learned that, that was a huge relief because I'm thinking, oh my goodness, hundreds of thousands of mistakes. What do I do with that? Well, it's really learning the nature of, of what is being called a mistake is really just a difference in the manuscript. And nobody that's listening to this would see one manuscript say Jesus Christ and the other say Christ Jesus and be like, oh, mistake. I'm throwing this all away. (laughs) They would, that wouldn't even, they probably wouldn't even notice it. And so the vast majority, there's just a tiny little percentage of these variations or these differences that actually do affect the meaning. And that was something I had to wrestle with Mm. because there, there are a few places in the New Testament where scholars aren't sure what the original wording was. But here's the thing. Every single one of those are footnoted in, in your study Bibles. Yep. In fact, people have probably scratched their heads over this where you might have one translation where the verse is a bit longer and then another translation where it's a bit shorter and you're like, wait, what happened here? Something either got added or taken out. What's going on? And usually what you're looking at is what's called a variant where um, scholars aren't sure what the original said. And, and, but, but here's the thing about even those, that's such a small percentage and not one of those calls into question any core essential doctrine regarding Christianity or the gospel. Mm. So it's not like there's only one verse that talks about Jesus being raised from the dead and that's a variant. Right. You know, it's like that we'd be in trouble if that were the case. But just, you know, if anyone's interested, here's a perfect example. In some of your Bibles, there's this scene where the disciples try to cast this demon out and they can't do it. So they come to Jesus and they say, you know, we couldn't do this. And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer in some Bibles. And then in some Bibles, it says this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. Fasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's an example of a variant where scholars aren't entirely sure. I think many scholars think that it's the one that just says prayer. Um, but then I've heard textual critics say, you know, but it's not going to hurt to pray and fast. And it's not going to change the gospel either way. Well, and right. So- that's the thing at the end of the day that when you explain all of that and talk about it, I love the example that you use in your book as you have like five different recipe, well, no, five of the same recipes written by five different people, or maybe it was like four. Yeah, yeah. And ultimately, you can still make the same cake that was your grandmother's. It's just, there's one word difference. Yes. And it helps me so much to think through it in that way, because we're not throwing the whole recipe to the cake away because of one little misprint. Yes, exactly. Or, you know, it maybe it got torn and you only have the word on one of the manuscripts. You still can line that up. And that's really the way to discover what the original said is you take, you know, the five recipe cards. And I think that's why it's so visually um, helpful to look in the book and actually see those five recipe cards because there's not a person, an honest person alive Mm -hmm. that would look at those recipe cards and say, yeah, I don't know what this recipe is because there's some differences in the copies. I think everybody would know exactly what it is. And that's kind of how, I mean, it's a simple uh, example, but it gives, it it shows the reader how textual criticism works. That's right. And so, um, so that, that would be the first question is, you know, do we have an accurate copy? So I became 
satisfied that we do. We have an accurate copy of what was written. Well, you could, in theory, have an accurate copy of a lie. You could have an accurate copy of something that was a later development or that, you know, people just made up as they went along. And so with the first question answered, okay, we have an accurate copy. Well, how do we know that this was actually eyewitness testimony? How do we know that the people who we think wrote this actually did write it? And there is so much just an overabundance of evidence to support the accuracy and the reliability of the New Testament documents, in particular, the gospels, which, you know, that's the story of Jesus. That's, that's right. where, so we get, that's where we get to know Jesus is in the gospels. It's hugely important to know that what was written in those gospels is accurate. And, and here's kind of the logic that I follow in the book is that if those documents, particularly the gospels are accurate, and if they accurately record what Jesus said, then we can know what Jesus thought about the scriptures because Jesus mm -hmm. talks about the Old Testament scriptures quite a bit. And so mm -hmm. that was kind of the, the logical journey I took. And, and just a couple of things about reliability. There are different ways scholars will look at historical documents to determine whether or not they're accurate. And I loved, I quoted Jay Werner Wallace in my yes. book because his book, Cold Case Christianity, talks about he's a, he was a successful cold case homicide detective in Los Angeles who was an atheist. And he used to chide Christians and make fun of Christians and say, oh, you guys don't know what you're talking about. But then he realized I've never actually examined the evidence for Christianity. Mm -hmm. So he turned Christianity into a cold case. And he, when he read the gospels, he saw all of the markers of authentic eyewitness testimony. Now he would know what that sounds like yeah. as a detective. And so I, I quote some examples of that in my book where we actually, the differences that we see in the gospels actually lend to its authenticity because if they all said the same thing word for word as a, the homicide detective says you know well that's how i would know they all got together to harmonize their testimony he says i expect if it's authentic that the different eyewitnesses are going to be telling things from a slightly different perspective and then you put that puzzle together to get the whole story and so i i quoted him in that but there are other um just I, the, even just looking at the names in the new testament the, you know, they didn't have Google back then. They didn't have a way to go find out what's the most popular girl's name in, you know, 52 AD or whatever. <laughs> That's right. Um, but if you go back and you look at what the most popular names were, the, the New Testament documents, the accuracy of even the percentages of the names is so accurate. Yeah. And interestingly, the Gnostic Gospels, which were written later, which a lot of people try to argue, you know, were, were a part of this early Christianity, they don't get those names right. Wow. And, so, and there's so many little things like that. So I think that you would be having to really go out of your way to try to figure out a way to make this not accurate, not eyewitness testimony. And when you really look at the facts, it's really kind of impossible to do. Mm. So we have accurate copy of authentic eyewitness testimony about Jesus Christ. Right. And that's that's right. a huge starting point. Well, and if there's anybody out there that's like me and they're true crime junkies, um, <laughs> Jay, that... <laughs> That part where you write about Jay Warner Wallace, I loved it because I was thinking of all those podcasts I've listened to where it's like, that's right. They say so many times if two people say the same thing in a, you know, in a protection room, they're mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, we want to keep them separate so yes. that they tell their own story. Otherwise, it's cooperation. 
That's right. They're going to get together and say, oh, wait, you saw that? Oh, yeah, maybe I did see that. And then they'll change their story to make it harmonize because that's just natural. That's what we do. That is what we do. Warner Wallace is saying, you know, he, he got to a crime scene, and I talk about this in the book, where it was raining. And so the local cops had all four eyewitnesses in the cop car together. And he got there and went, oh, well, this, this is going to be no good to me now because they've all had a chance to talk with each to other. To powwow together. That's yeah. right. I mean, and so that did help connect some dots for me because that is total common sense. I mean, we know that even with our kids, right? Yeah. They know they're in trouble and they cooperate together. We're in big trouble because you don't know what the truth really is. And so with all of that said, what is kind of the view that you would say progressives have of the Bible? Okay. So the progressive view of the Bible is sort of unique in that they are going to adopt some of that theological liberalism I talked about that's going to call the miraculous nature of the Bible into question. But there's a little added nuance that the progressive movement has added to that discussion. And that what you will often hear from progressive Christians is they'll, because they, they want to keep what they would call a high view of the Bible. They don't want to just turn the Bible into some kind of a secular book or, or something that's not important. They want to be able to say, I have a very high view of scripture. That's right. And so they, they'll change the way they read it um, this is not the way Jesus quoted scripture or treated the Bible. This is not how the earliest Christians or the church fathers treated the Bible. But progressives will look back at, let's say, an Old Testament prophet. And when that prophet says, okay, here's what God is saying, and then God's words are recorded, mm-hmm. the progressive Christian will say, well, that's not necessarily God talking. So that prophet was just doing his best in the time and place that he lived to explain his best understanding of God at that time. Mm -hmm. And so what they'll say in the progressive church a lot is that, you know, the old, the Israelites would look around at the pagan cultures and see these people sacrificing to their gods, the gods were angry, or they're trying to appease their gods to get rain for their crops, or they're, they're trying to get a good harvest. So they'll make a sacrifice. And so Israel looked around and saw that. And so that's just, they were copying that. But when they would bring the the goat and the bull for the sacrifice, that's not something they had to do. That wasn't Mm. something Yahweh actually said for them to do. That's just what their prophets thought their God would want. And so looking at it that way, then of course, to say the Bible is God's word and read it that way is incompatible. So often they won't say that the entire Bible is God's word. They might say that parts of it are God's word or it might become God's word to you when you read it, you know, and like some kind of meaning emerges. But when the words of God are recorded in the Bible, that's not necessarily God's word. And so then they'll, they'll carry that over to the New Testament as well. So you'll have a progressive Christian say something like, well, I think Paul had prejudices and biases that, that tainted what he was saying perhaps about women or about sexuality. And so uh, we can disagree with him on those things. And so they're not seeing the entire Bible as internally coherent. They're not seeing it as all telling the same story. They're seeing it as very contradictory. It's sort of this library of books where everybody's disagreeing with each other and we can look back at what they believed about God in their times and places, but we don't necessarily have to agree with them. Okay. Yeah. So much more personal revelation to now. 
Yeah, I think so. Because even Brian McLaren, who was one of the founders of the Emergent Church, which was the seedbed for this progressive movement, he even said, you know, we, we are at a higher and wiser view of God now. So we can look back and, and kind of, he, he compares the Old Testament scriptures to fossils. We can kind of dust those fossils off and figure out what they thought about God, but that's not necessarily authoritative. Mm for Christians. Wow. Well, and with that said, I have a listener who is also a friend and we have talked back and forth about some of your podcast episodes and I agree with her question. She said, I would love to just know some, you know, buzzwords, some um, red flags when it comes to progressive Christian thought. Can you share any of those, you know, words like, oh, when I hear that, my ears should perk up a little bit and yeah. kind of cipher through what they're saying. Yeah. So you're going to, there are definitely some buzzwords and phrases, things like cosmic child abuse is something that you'll hear a lot in the progressive church in regard to the atonement. So the idea that God, the father would require the blood sacrifice of his only son to make atonement for sin in the progressive mind, this turns God into a cosmic child abuser. So you might hear things like divine child abuse or God, you know, according to the Bible, God is requiring child sacrifice or cosmic child abuse is a, is a huge theme in that church, in the progressive church. You might also hear a lot of references to personal conscience in regard to morality. So the Bible isn't going to be the authority for uh, that's going to inform what we believe about morality. It's going to be pers our personal God-given consciences that's going to decide those things. You're going to look for the redefinition of words. A lot of times in the progressive church, the, they'll talk about love and this is the most loving thing to do, or God is love, therefore, or Jesus loves this person, therefore, and then X, Y, Z. And so what they've done is redefined the word love to mean basically just celebration and affirmation of whatever somebody wants to do or believe mm -hmm. rather than the biblical definition being, yes, love is patient and kind. But then you also have these words in that same chapter where it says love rejoices in the truth and mm -hmm. it can't rejoice in wrongdoing. And so that's sort of jettisoned in favor of this cultural definition of love. You'll also hear a, a lot of I couldn't believe in a God who, and then fill in the blank. So whatever it may be that they have trouble with, with the Bible or with the historic Christian gospel, you might hear them say, well, I couldn't believe in a God who could send people to hell or in a God who could condemn homosexuality, mm -hmm. or I couldn't believe in a God who, you know, just fill in the blank. Right. And so they're, again, that, but that goes back to their personal conscience. They're really comparing God with their own morality rather than comparing their own morality with God's holy nature. That's right. And so it becomes a very uh, individualistic and personal feelings-based belief. Yeah, well, and when you're talking about the redefining of words, I mean, a friend of yours, Hillary Ferrer, was on the show last week, and I recommend to listeners and friends all the time, because she has a chapter in her book, Mama Bear Apologetics, um, The Linguistic Theft, and yeah. so, so helpful to anyone who's listening. I just can't recommend that enough. I loved the whole book, but even just that particular chapter is so helpful in our current culture today. So, yes. and I know you guys have had plenty of episodes really talking about that whole linguistic theft idea. 
Yeah. And that's it. it. I love that she came up with that phrase for it because that, that really describes it just perfectly. It We're does. Love and tolerance and justice now, all kinds of different words getting redefined along with culture rather than saying, well, wait a minute, what are, what do we mean when we use these words and make sure we're having a conversation based on a common understanding? Because often a progressive Christian will be using those words in an entirely different way. And you're assuming you're talking about the same thing, but you're really not. That's right. Well, and it's so subtle, this, oh yeah, I do believe we're supposed to love God and love our neighbor. Of course. And so you hear that and all of a sudden you start thinking, oh, well, maybe I don't because, you know, does that mean X, Y, and Z or does that mean A, B, and C? And so it is a very subtle change. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so, and that's something that um, I struggle with and to communicate with other people. And I know that's part of why you wrote this book, because that being able to talk through it. And so how do you really go about encouraging Christians when you get that question to educate and prepare themselves to interact with progressive Christian claims? So I think that just to lay a foundation of what the most important thing is when we're encountering really any kind of claim against the gospel, progressive Christianity included, is to really make sure, number one, that we have a really good working knowledge of the real thing. And this is, it's an old preacher story. Everybody uses it, but it just has so much truth. It's so good. Just the fact that FBI agents are trained, and I think this is actually true because I looked into this. It's not, it's not just a legend. <laughs> FBI agents are trained to spot counterfeit money, not by studying the counterfeits, but by handling the real thing. Mm. So they're sitting there, they're looking at the real bills. And that way they don't have to study the counterfeits because the second a counterfeit comes across their desk, they're going to spot it immediately because they're so acquainted with what real money looks like. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can really apply that to the gospel and say, we need to be so equipped with what the real thing is. We need to be biblically literate. We need to know how to understand our Bibles. We need to have good, what's called hermeneutics, which is the study of interpreting the Bible. We need to understand the context within which it was written. Who wrote it? Who were they writing it to? How did that original audience understand this message? And this is all before we even think about applying it to our own life. Mm. Right. So we have to understand the Bible. We need to be knowledgeable about what the Bible says, what it reveals about the nature and the character of God and about the gospel. And we need to be in fellowship and community with other Christians who believe um, the gospel. And I think if we start there, that's, that's the first step, is to be really well acquainted with the real thing. And I think the second thing is maybe to understand why people are so attracted to progressive Christianity. Mm-hmm. because it can be so easy for maybe a more conservative Christian to say, well, I just don't get it. Why would they basically reject Christianity and still want to call themselves Christians? And what's so attractive about this anyway? Yeah. And I think that in my book in chapter four, I talk about different reasons people uh, are basically leaving the historic church for the progressive church. And a lot of those reasons have to do with kind of what I mentioned earlier about watching friends walk away because of unanswered prayers and things. There are a lot of reasons, you know, growing up in a really legalistic environment, uh, growing up in a Christian bubble, maybe even encountering some legitimate abuse in the church environments they grew up in. Um, Others just have trouble with the Bible. You know, the Noah's Ark story that they colored as a child on a coloring paper 
when they get older and they realize the horrific nature of, of God's judgment on mankind, that, that is the backdrop of that story that they never really realized before. In fact, Rachel Held Evans in her book um, puts this kind of perfectly. She says, God, who was supposed to be the hero of the story, was starting to look more like the villain, and she couldn't make sense of that. And so in her journey toward progressive Christianity, uh, it had a lot to do with the Bible and what she was perceiving about God in the Bible. Mm. Uh, And so this, again, why it's so important to really know God from the Bible, because you know, those kind of stories reveal his attitude towards sin, which will make the gospel beautiful to somebody who believes that it's good that God is holy. Like it's good for us that God is, can have no unity with sin because that's what will keep uh, our existence with him for all eternity quarantined away from evil and suffering. That's That's how that happens. And, but, but when we aren't able to put all those pieces together, I can see why that would be a struggle for somebody. They come across Mm -hmm. God commanding Israel to go wipe out the Canaanites. Well, it helps also to know how absolutely depraved and wicked the Canaanites were. I think um, all the people crying out for justice in our streets right now would be crying out for God to enact justice on the Canaanites mm. if they really understood what that society was like. And so I think understanding some of those things can help. Uh, but, you know, trouble with the Bible is a reason. Another reason is, I mean, I can't even imagine, especially for young people, the pressure to capitulate to culture on sexuality. Oh my gosh, me You know, neither. I mean, it we're not just being called bigots anymore. We're being mm-hmm. told that our belief, just believing what we believe about what the Bible teaches about sexuality is actually harming people, mm-hmm. it's causing depression, it's causing suicide. So, I mean, the pressure, especially on a younger Christian has That's got to right. be so immense when you've got this movement of people saying, oh no, you can change your mind on that. It's all good. You can still be a Christian. You can still have Jesus. And I, and I can understand why that's attractive. So I think understanding some of those reasons is important and to inform the way we're going to communicate with people that are being tempted by this movement. Yes. Yes. Thank you. I mean, it is, it's really, really challenging. And that is why even with my own kids, and I'm sure you probably feel similarly, If you're a parent, have hard conversations with your kids. Don't be afraid. Don't think shielding them from some of the hard things is going to save them in the long run. We are not promised that our kids are going to choose Jesus in the end. But I can't tell you the conversations I've had with my 10 and 8-year-old that says, you know what, Noah's Ark, it wasn't just a bunch of little sweet animals going on. Yeah. God said, I'm going to choose you and set you apart because all these people have turned from me. And so because of his holiness and sin, he wiped everybody out. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, we think they can't handle that, but I would rather them handle it coming from me mm. than waiting till they're out on their own Yeah. and reading it for themselves and asking someone else the question. And so that's, just don't stray funny. away from that. Yeah, it's so important. And I try to do that. Even it's hard even, I think, because we can have so much fear as parents, but I think it's even important to be the initiator of some of those things to even ask our kids, like, what, what's your biggest question about God? And then Mm -hmm. if we can just react without fear and just continue to ask our kids questions and open up that conversation, then I think they'll be more likely to come to us when they start to absolutely doubts and things like that. And especially if we give them some space to doubt. And that's the hardest thing as a parent, like when, when my daughter asks me a skeptical question, cause they are asking skeptical questions. I mean, that's the, 
that's the water they're swimming in. That's in right. right now. And it's so scary. And it, it's like everything in me just wants to be like, because the Bible says so or something, you know, that, but we know statistically that's driving kids away because they need space to be able to think about those questions. And so becoming that welcoming environment and, and actually praising the good questions, you know, when, yes. even if your kid asks a scary question and you have to kind of land back on your feet, just compliment them for asking such a thoughtful question, you know, and that will, first of all, make them, it'll validate the fact that they're trying to seek for truth. You know, what a great question. Yes. This, this is a question a lot of people have been asking for a lot of years and maybe asking your kids more questions about that and even sharing like, well, you know, when I had that question, here's how I processed it mm -hmm. rather than telling them what to think, because just this particular cultural moment we're in, mm -hmm. people are being so driven away by just dogmatic truth statements. So trying to keep the conversation going with good questions, right. I think is a good, good way, especially for parents to go about with their kids. I agree so much. I mean, we, we are question askers in our family, so it can be a little overwhelming at times, but what a great way to let them know that you're a safe place to process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, cause they'll go to Google if we don't do that. I, we don't want that. No, we don't. Well, as we close out today, you've touched on this a little bit when it comes to the whole idea of love. And so we are commanded, like we said earlier, to love God and love people. And something I see so much now is almost that tolerance is love. You don't disagree with someone or you're unloving. And so thinking about that, what are some other things that you would say the progressive Christian movement is really misinterpreting those commands? Yeah, I, I think that the redefinition, redefinition of the word love and the redefinition of the word tolerance. So let's talk about that for a second, because that provides the backdrop for this question, really. You know, the word tolerance by nature means that you disagree with somebody because you don't have to tolerate someone if you just agree with everything they're saying. That's not tolerance. That's just called agreement. That's right. So by its very nature, tolerance requires disagreement, but that's not what the word means anymore. Now, tolerance has become this catch-all phrase to mean basically what love means, affirming and celebrating whatever someone thinks or wants to do or believes about the world. And um, that's, biblically speaking, that's not loving. It's you're not loving someone. If my, if my daughter has a cavity and she doesn't want to go to the dentist because it might hurt or she's fearful, it's not loving of me to say, okay, we won't go. It'll be fine. We'll just leave it. And I'll just affirm you and love you and it'll be fine. Well, if, if we do that, there's a good chance that that's, that's decay is going to continue to grow, That's right. it could go into the bone and cause an even greater pain. And so sometimes love has to do hard things. Sometimes love has to um, make decisions and say things that are difficult. Mm -hmm. And that's, but we're doing that because we love, because honestly, it would be so much easier to not have to do that, especially right. in this culture. And so um, I think that the one thing to be aware of too, with um, talking about biblical commands and things that, that are being changed in the progressive world, it really affects their view of the gospel. And so if we, if we see the gospel largely in the Bible and throughout Christian history being about God reconciling sinful man to himself, essentially, I guess you could say is the, the heart of the gospel, which will always bear fruit of good works, of course. But in the progressive church, you know, like I mentioned, they don't like the atonement. They don't like the idea of Jesus sacrificing yeah. himself for our sins. And so with that gone, 
the gospel largely becomes a gospel of works. So yeah. it's it's about what you do. It's about who you help. And of course, we do want to help people as Christians. Of course, we're commanded to do those things, but that's not what's going to save us. And that's I think right. in the progressive paradigm, they may not word it like this, but salvation is coming from works, which is just another workspace gospel, which Christians have had to stand against since the very first century. Even in the Bible, Paul is saying, stop it with the works. It's <laughs> not going to save you. You don't have to be circumcised anymore. And mm -hmm. so it's, um, I think that, you know, every new thing always harkens back to an old thing. And yes. I think that's what we see in the progressive uh, movement. And so my encouragement to the listeners would be, again, know the real thing, even read, read some of the church fathers, go back to the really early stuff. And if you're not in line, basically with some of the real early stuff, then you might have slid into a mm -hmm. bit of a false gospel. Now, of course, the church fathers are fallible. They, they're not writing the Bible. Right. The Bible is the only inerrant, infallible source for truth. But read those early guys. See what's lining up with the Bible. See what's lining up with you and all three of those things. That's what I did. And yeah. I was delighted to discover that my core beliefs really did line up with, with all of that. And I tweaked some, some secondary stuff on the way and realized I had some unbiblical beliefs about some things. But um, the core was there. And um, that's what we need to preserve is that, that beautiful core of the gospel. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for being here today. Will you let everybody know if they want to connect with you, where is the best place? You can go to alisachilders.com. And from there, you'll be able to find my blog and my YouTube channel and my podcast. And you'll be, there's a link to the book. Of course, I've documented all of this in my book, Another Gospel, where I walk the reader through my journey uh, of doubt and back out. And it, I'm addressing the progressive movement along the way and answering the claims, how I answered them as a, you know, part of my story. So it's very story driven. It's disarming in the sense that uh, I think you could give it to somebody who's confused or maybe being a little bit tempted by the movement. Yes. It's probably not going to convince a hard, hardened progressive Christian, but if somebody's sort of on their way and they're confused, I think it might be a helpful resource for them, but that's called another gospel. You can find that at the website as well. Yes, I agree completely and so appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. I hope today's conversation with Elisa helped you to think through some of the ideas and questions that have been or will be thrown at you in regards to your faith in Jesus. If you are interested in purchasing any of the resources mentioned in today's episode, I want to invite you to visit graceenoughpodcast.com forward slash show notes. Every book mentioned during Grace Enough episodes can be found in the show notes. When you purchase through those links, I receive a small commission at no cost to you. That commission helps support the content I put out week to week on Grace Enough podcast. Friends, thank you for your support and for listening week in and week out. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time!